0: Good morning, everyone. This morning, we'll continue our summer psalm series uh, by going into Psalm 88. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles just before you, below the seat. Uh, The passage will be found on page 494 on those Bibles. Again, it's Psalm 88. Let's read it. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes, my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we praise you for this morning. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that we get to come and gather and hear your word and sing it to one another and be reminded of your goodness and your grace. Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need your spirit to revive our hearts through it. We pray that you would refresh us in it this morning. Father, I lift up those who are walking through loss and pain and grief right now. Please be with them, Lord. Please shine your face upon them that they may know hope and they may move forward in the midst of their grief, rejoicing in you, even in the midst of pain. Father, we pray for those who have wandered off from among us, chasing the shiny things of this world, thinking there is joy to be found in sinful things. Lord, we pray that you would mercifully grab hold of them and bring them back. Allow them to see your glories, Father. Allow them to repent and trust in Christ alone and to live for him. And Father, now as we get into your word, I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts and give us understanding, give us greater depths of knowledge of who you are, that we might praise you for the through the greatest highs and the greatest lows of life. We pray this all for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to start out this morning right away addressing the elephant in the room. And that elephant is that this psalm is dark. It has such a hopeless feel to it. It's, it's like no, no other. There are other psalms, there are other laments in the psalms, and yet none of them are like this. The others, yes, they lament, but they always come back to hope in God and praising God. We see other psalms with patterns like Psalm 42 that, that say things like, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then it turns into Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And we see David in Psalm 27 begin with, Though an army encamp against me, though evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. And then he ends the psalm with, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. But Psalm 88 is altogether different. It does not brighten up. The author cannot see clearly through the despair to find any hope at all. It is a lament all throughout from beginning to end, and it ends with God, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is not a happy ending at all. To make this even more peculiar, is the fact that this was a poem written to be sung by the people of God as they gather to worship our God. The people of God with one voice would sing this song together. Could you imagine this morning if we stood and we sung this song together? I highly doubt that it would be followed by claps and shouts of amen. I think instead it would be an awkward silence and we'd be thinking, I sure hope there's a more up." Song to follow this psalm. Uh, Biblical biblical counselor Ed Welch refers to this psalm as the basement of the Psalms. There's a reason that kids do not like going in the basement because it's nasty and it's dark and it's scary. When I was a kid, I grew up in an old Victorian home, and it was more like a dungeon than it was a basement. There was sand, and there were big rocks on the walls. And every time I would go down, I felt like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. When he walked down in the basement, and he pictured the furnace coming alive like it was going to eat him. That's what I felt like going down in the basement when I was a kid. And so kids, you're in the sermon this this summer. Buckle up, because we're going into the basement of the Psalms this morning. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this of the psalm. He said, It's a sad complaint that reads very little like a song at all. Assuredly, if ever there was a song of sorrow and a psalm of sadness, this is the one. He said it was a mournful dirge like him to express holy sorrow. Not only is it a lament from beginning to end, but the psalmist in it questions God. He accuses God, and he believes this lie that God has abandoned him. Now, with all we know about God from the scriptures, about his goodness, about his sovereign plan, about the foolishness of questioning God, we must wonder, why would God place this song in his holy scriptures? And I think Paul Tripp has a, a great answer in his reflections on Psalm 88 and when she says, one of the most refreshing things about the Bible is that it doesn't offer a sanitized version of life or our reactions to it. If the Bible left out stories of murder, rape, famine, disease, judgment, depression, and overwhelming fear, how likely would we believe that God's word can help us? Because of this, some of the most comforting passages in Scripture may not even have the word comfort in them. As we all know, Christianity is not lived out in some fairy tale land. It's lived out in the real world. And the real world we live in is a fallen world. And so God's people face things like disease and the effects of sin and loss and shattered hopes, depression, PTSD, anxiety, failing health, broken relationships, and that's just the beginning of the list. I could go on and on. As we learn to trust in God in all things, we, like the psalmist, can experience despair. God's people can and likely will experience despair at some point in their lives. As a quick note, we must remember that This psalm is not to be read like a Pauline epistle where he's carefully articulating doctrine and teaching who God is. Rather, this person is writing in some of the deepest, darkest pain and despair in their lives and of his life. And if you've never been there, I want you to think about this for a minute. This might help you grab a hold of what he's feeling inside. Imagine that you've just whacked your finger with a hammer. And I'm not talking about a hammer where you're hanging a picture in your house and you're tapping a little tiny nail in the drywall with a little tiny hammer. I'm talking about the big hammer. Like the one when when my dad and my uncle, they built our house when I was in middle school. And my brothers and I, we would get together and we'd try to help. And we always tried to be the toughest, strongest one. And, And the way we would try to do that is by who could hit the nail the least amount of times and get it to go in the wood. So we're hitting it as hard as we can. And if you could get like three, you were the man, right? I'm talking about hitting your thumb with that kind of a swing, a big swing of a big hammer for a big nail. Imagine that you've just done that, and you're in excruciating pain. And in that pain, within the first 30 seconds, you embark on a journey to write a poem to God. Could you imagine that? It wouldn't sound very nice, and I highly doubt that many of your poems would be read in the children's Sunday school class. This is the psalmist's pain, and it's an inner pain, but it's a level 10 pain in his soul, and he's in anguish, and he's daringly taken on the task of writing a poem to God in the midst of his despair. Let's think for just a minute about what despair is. Despair is the feeling that hope cannot be found. So it's not just a simple sadness. It's it's the feeling that hope cannot be found. It happens when we've placed our hope in something, That is taken from us. If you think about it, we all have high hopes for many good things in life—hopes for our career, hopes for our health, hopes for our family. And despair sets in when we've lost that which we've placed our hope in, and we're left with crippling discouragement. Despair leaves us feeling that there's no way forward, as if we're stuck and hopeless. And the darkest, most saddest thing about one who is in despair is that They are left with the feeling that hope cannot even be found in God. And because in our despair we fail to trust God, there is sin that is involved in despair. However, in helping those who are in despair, we would be so wise to remember Paul's words to the Thessalonians when he says, We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, but encourage the faint hearted, to help the weak. To be patient with them all. We would prove to be worse than the friends of Job to enter one's suffering and to seek to admonish and rebuke them in the midst of their despair. Rather, a good friend patiently comes alongside such a one to help them and to encourage them in the Lord. And so, if your brother or sister is in despair, start with listening. Let them speak about it, acknowledge the difficulty show understanding, show unconditional love, and read the scriptures with them. Remind them of where hope can be found, even when it can't be found in whatever it is they lost. Remind them of the scriptures that say there is reason for hope. And as I said, I just need to say this again, God's people can and likely will experience despair. We see this in verse 1, that the author who's writing this psalm is one of God's people. He says he belongs to the Lord, and yet he has lost sight of hope, even hope in God. And from what I can tell, this man is a Job-like character who is upright and blameless. And so it's not like he committed some gross sin, and now the Lord is disciplining him. He seems upright and blameless, and yet here he is suffering and experiencing deep despair. And he says things in his despair, such as, My soul is full of troubles. I am a man who has no strength. He says he's overwhelmed, and he says he feels like a prisoner locked up in his misery, like one is locked up in a jail cell. So clouded by his misery is the psalmist that he accuses the Lord of casting his soul away and hiding his glory from him. That's what he means when he says the Lord has hidden his face from me. He means the Lord has hidden his glory from him and taken it away. Now hearing this man's words, you may judge him as simply weak, to be wrong about God, and lacking faith. But God has given us this song, and at one time he had this song sung among the people of God so that we would understand that any one of us could be found in this man's shoes. In reading scriptures, we find that there are many who have experienced despair, and it's not just Anyone, some of the heroes, what we would call the heroes or the giants of the faith, walk through despair. If you consider David's life, David suffered great loss and he found himself battling despair and he writes about it in Psalm 13 where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then there's Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, the prophet. She's a woman of great faith, and she was recorded in Scripture weeping, refusing to eat, praying to the Lord in what she says is deep anguish and grief, and she was found weeping bitterly. She described herself as a woman who was in deep trouble in her soul and poured out her soul to the Lord. We often think of Elijah as this great prophet who did amazing things, and he, and he, he faced wicked rulers, and he showed people that worship false god to be fools, and he wasn't afraid. And yet in his life, he was in such despair, he asked the Lord that he might die. He said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. And then there's Paul in the New Testament, who we often hold up on a pedestal, Paul, the great apostle, the one who wrote scripture, plant churches, he also experienced great despair in the midst of gospel ministry. In 2 Corinthians 2, 8-9, he writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul, in the ministry for the gospel, felt such despair that he wanted to die. Many others in scripture and in church history battled despair. The doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher-pastor, wrestled with despair. He he demonstrated this in his writings. So did missionary David Brainerd. The hymn writer and poet, William Cooper, also battled hopelessness. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, battled such despair that he almost hung it up and quit being a pastor. He just wanted to give up. He felt hopeless. In these examples, we see hopes that were dashed to pieces. David had sinful hopes, and the Lord used dashing them to pieces to bring him back and discipline him so he would repent. Hannah had her hopes set on having a son who would serve the Lord, and yet God made her wait for his timing. William Cooper simply wanted his depression to lift, and it never did his whole life. Spurgeon had great hopes for his church to grow, and he wanted to care for them so they would grow in the the Lord. And yet one Sunday morning, a prankster in his church of thousands yelled out, "'Fire!' and his congregation rose and rushed for the door, and people were trampled, seven were dead, and 28 were seriously injured and admitted to the hospital." Despair is not unheard of among believers. Rather, we see it experienced by most at some point in their walk with God. Despair is nearly inevitable for, for Christians who live in a fallen world and are being prepared for heaven. Some of us will experience little despair in our lives. Others may experience great amounts of despair. But it's something that God allows us to walk through that we may truly know the hope that is to be found in God alone. While it is true that one in total despair is not seeing God rightly, we must not look down on these brothers and sisters as if they are lesser Christians. To do so is to be puffed up and to think our faith is so much greater. Here's what Spurgeon had to say about a person in such a prideful situation that they would look down on someone in despair. He says, there are a great many of you who appear to have a large stock of faith, but it is only because you are in very good health and your business is prospering. If you had happened to get a disordered liver or your business should fail, I should not be surprised if nine-tenths of your wonderful faith should evaporate. Not only should we be careful not to look down on our brothers and sisters wrestling through despair, but we should tremble in the fear of the Lord. Because Scripture talks about how Satan wants to do nothing more than sift us like wheat. And he wants nothing to tempt us to the point where we curse God. As a pastor, I've I've personally witnessed some of the greatest faith in brothers and sisters who are wrestling through despair. And, And believe it or not, their words sound eerily like the psalmist. At first read, this man's faith seems weak and maybe even non-existent, but a closer look will reveal that this man is exercising true faith. He's turning to the Lord. You may not have noticed this upon first read, but as you read this several times, you'll notice that he refers to God 32 times in 18 verses. The first time I read this, it sounded almost like a godless psalm. And as I read it, I see this man is turning to, talking to, and talking about God a lot. He may not do so accurately, and he may, be understand, he may be struggling to understand God, but he is going to God. The atheist who has no belief in God, they don't turn to God at all. Many of us in our suffering aren't much better than the atheists. We sometimes struggle to get beyond the pain to having a single thought about God. But the psalmist brings his wrestlings honestly before the Lord, and we need to go to God honestly in our wrestling with despair. Here's what Ed Welch has to say about this man's faith as he wrestles with despair. He says, This man feels dark despair, but it's despair in the Lord's direction. In other words, it's still faith. Even when faith feels so discouraged, you can only say, You are my only hope. Help, where are you? That counts. It made it into the Bible. If there were no God and there were no greatest pur- greater purpose in life, then there would truly be no hope in this fallen world. But as the people of God, we know that there is hope to be found in God. And so even though we may feel as though we are stuck in the dark and we can't see up or down or we can't see God's glory, we can trust that he will eventually give us a glimpse and he will carry us out and lead us forward. So we turn to him and we wait even when there seems to be no answer at the moment. But there's a warning here because yes, we wanna turn to God and we wanna turn to God honestly, but we need to be careful because our honesty about how we feel does not trump the truth of who God is. And so I want you to think about this. Just like in any good relationship, it's built on honesty. If you were really close with someone, picture your closest friend and you've been friends for a long time, things are great, have been going really well, and all of a sudden your friend wants to meet and they want to sit down with you and they say, I have something I need to talk about and it's serious and it's about our relationship. Over the past couple of years, I've had serious doubts about your character. I'm really worried about the kind of person you are. But can you imagine how you would feel in that moment? You'd think, all along? You pretended like everything was fine. You'd be so deeply hurt. You'd think, why didn't you just tell me? We could have worked through this together. You'd feel like a total fool. And if you think about your relationship with God, God already knows everything that's in your heart. He knows all your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows your struggles. And so he doesn't want you to... Put up this, this false picture that you're this perfect Christian and you're ultra-holy and you're stronger than you really are when you've got turmoil and struggling in your heart. He wants you to be open and serious about and, and honest about it. And, and, and even if it means doubt. And, and while doubting is not right, it is not good, covering it up with prayers that make you sound holy is even worse. And so we need to bring our wrestlings, our doubts and our shattered hopes to God, and we need to do so honestly. But we need to come to him in a, struggling in a Godward direction. And so the psalmist is right in that he's taking the first step in coming and turning to God, which is great. But he has to get to a place, the goal is to get to a place of affirming who this God is as laid out in the scriptures. And so the goal in the moment might just be to turn to God honestly, but the long-term goal needs to be hope that is firmly fixed in the one true God who is laid out in the scriptures. And so again, I just want to say this. to To be openly expressing doubt to God doesn't put you in the right, but it does put you on the right track. Like the psalmist, we must turn to God honestly in our despair. And we could end here with those, those two points. I think that's what the psalmist gives us. He gives us the fact that we could, we could all experience despair. And he, and he shows us that we could turn to God openly and honestly, and yet it still seems like sad news because he ends his psalm with complaining against God and struggling to trust him. That's where the psalmist leaves us. But I thank God that Psalm 88 does not exist in isolation, but rather it exists in in a book that goes from Psalm 89 to Revelation. And so Psalm 88 does not have the final word on these matters. There's a glimmer of hope that is seen in verse 1. The psalmist cries out, O Lord, God of my salvation. And in doing this, what the psalmist is hoping for was comfort and peace and relief. And he knows to turn to the God of his salvation to be delivered. Brothers and sisters, how much more do we know that we can turn to the God of our salvation for these things because of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us hope even when all in the world is lost. Think about the gospel. Jesus Christ entered this real world, this fallen world, and he experienced the thorns and the thistles and the hardship, and then he died a sinner's death in our place so that he could be Take the judgment for our sin upon himself and just think about this. In that moment, he was truly without hope. If you're going to be found without hope, here's a moment to be found without hope. You stand before God to have your sins judged. And there was no way out for Christ. Listen to his words in Mark 14, 32 through 36. It says, and he and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from Sorry, I always messed mess that one up last service. He fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so God the Son became the man of sorrows to take our sin so that our sin would be paid for on the cross. And we can know that we will never taste the wrath of God because Jesus tasted the wrath of God for us. So in your doubts, You may feel like the psalmist, as if God's wrath is upon you, and he's judging you. And yet, as a Christian in Christ, we will never taste the wrath of God in judgment for our sins. Not only that, but in this beautiful passage where Christ is preparing to go to the cross, and he's in despair, and he's in anger, we know that our God sympathizes with us in our weakness, even when we feel stuck and we're tempted to doubt God. The gospel gives hope to those wrestling with despair. Listen, now we could turn anywhere in the New Testament and just see promise after promise and wonderful thing of gospel encouragement for those in despair. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3-5 through and look at some of these gospel promises. 1 Peter 1, through 3-5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter reminds us of the hope we have as Christians right here, right now in the present. He reminds us of the hope that we have that God is our Father and Jesus Christ is our Lord. The psalmist wouldn't have dreamt of raising his voice to say, Father, to God. And yet, because we are in Christ, we are heirs with Christ and we are counted as firstborn sons and we can say, Father. And we know that Jesus Christ is our Master. He is our Lord. He says in this passage, Peter says, we are born again to a living hope. This is not a hope that is dead. It is a hope that is living because the spirit of God, because of the work of Jesus Christ, has been poured out into our hearts and it affirms that we belong to God. We are his. Our hearts cry out because of the spirit that we belong to God. And so as we walk through struggles and we feel hopeless, We can know in the depths of our hearts. God has not cast us away. We belong to him. He also says in verse 5 that we are being guarded by the power of God so that he will carry us through to the end. He will keep the Christian to the end, even the Christian who battles deep, dark despair. These are scriptural promises that give us hope now, regardless of our circumstances. Whatever it is, you know that God is going to keep you. And it's not by your faith. It's not by any power you have within yourself. It says that God will keep you by his power, and he's not going to let you go. And so these are precious gospel promises that you can hold on to in the midst of despair. And yet it doesn't end there. Peter also highlights hope for the future. And this is sweet, and we cannot forget this, Christians, because this world is tough, and sometimes it's hard to find hope, and we must remember that there is future hope. Circumstances could enter your life and leave you distressed and in great pain, but in the struggle, yes, we want relief. Think about the psalmist. What this psalmist wants as he cries out to God, he wants the pain to be over. He wants some relief, and he's struggling to see, will it ever happen? There is no promise in scripture that we will live a pain-free life in this fallen world. We know as Christians, in fact, it's quite the opposite. It says we are to expect trouble. We shouldn't be surprised when trouble comes as if something foreign were happening to us and we all, together, along with creation, groan for relief from our fallen state. And yet there is promise of relief in the gospel. And just as we cling to the present hope, we also cling to the future hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection. Just as Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, we too will be risen from the dead to glorified bodies. We will obtain this inheritance in full. Our minds will be glorified. Our sin will be done away with. And above all, we have the hope of seeing God in all of his glory face to face. And never again, Christian, what we have to worry about are that being clouded by doubt and despair and darkness and difficult circumstances because that's all going to be taken away and we're going to be in glory. And so, Christian, remember the future hope this morning that this belongs to you. This is certain. It's certain. This is not some made-up promise. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. This is a guarantee by God, a promise for every Christian that there's a little light at the end of the tunnel and as you walk through life, it's going to get brighter and brighter and one day you will enter glory and you will be in the glory of God's presence and all these things will be gone. It is certain. Hold on to that hope this morning, this morning, despairing Christian. And I want to open up that, that up even more because it's even more beautiful than that, and we want to fix our eyes on these beautiful eternal promises this morning. And so, I want to look at 2 Corinthians 4:16 through 17. Paul says, "So we do not lose heart, though our outer, outer self is wasting away; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." Do you see what Paul is doing in this text? He's saying, these light momentary afflictions, which seem so hard to bear right now, are preparing for us a glory that is so great, it makes these afflictions seem tiny. And he's not saying this in some cheap triumphalistic way. This is Paul who was whipped. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He starved. He experienced the cold. He experienced a prison cell. That's who's writing this. And so he's not belittling our problems. He's saying that these things seem small because the glory to be received in the future is so great. And so we do not lose heart. We do not lose hope. We do not enter despair because if you take the things in this life that have got you down, he's saying, and if you multiply them by infinity, that's how much glory you're going to experience in heaven. That is your future, Christian. That is certain. Relief is promised and it is certain. And so Psalm 88 gives us words to speak even in the darkest moments of our lives when we're completely worn out and we're struggling to hold on to our faith. God included these words in the scriptures and it shows us that he understands our moments of deep, dark despair. Praise God, he understands. And there's such good, great comfort in just knowing that our God who he will stand before one day and give account, he understands. And brothers and sisters, remember, none of us are immune to entering seasons of despair. At any moment, good things in your life could be taken from you, putting you in a place to learn to trust in God in new ways. That's really what's happening in despair for the believer. We're learning to trust in God in new ways. You could be left feeling as though you can't go on and that you can't see God clearly. And brothers and sisters, we want to know that, but we also want to not be puffed up and believe that we're better than others who are going through times of weakness. Rather, even us ourselves, we should tremble before the Lord knowing that such things could come against us that would challenge our faith and st- faith and stretch and grow it. We are so weak, and yet God is so strong, and he will carry us through. And we want to remember, if you're going through a season of despair this morning, remember this this morning. If you're not, and maybe there's something that the future holds, remember this. Remember the precious gospel promises for right now, here on this earth, today, and also those for the future. Whatever your circumstances, do not despair. There is hope that is to be found in the gospel. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you understand. Thank you that when we feel this way, we do not have to feel as if we are cast away from you and it's hopeless for us and we're not your people, but we know that you understand. We know that you're faithful. We know that you're carrying us through and we know that we can rely on the hope that is to be found in the gospel, both now and in the future. And so, Lord, we pray for those imprisoned by despair right now, who lie in grief, who are locked up in doubting castle's dungeon, stripped of hope and relief, of relief, Father, please help them to remember your precious gospel promises. Lord, give us as a church the ability to enter their pain and suffering and to not be like Job's friends, but to be good and faithful ministers of the gospel who will listen, who will be with them, who will empathize and who will speak the word of God appropriately into their lives. May we not judge them and think that we are great. Father, please unlock their doors that, that bar them in and set them free. Lord, help us to be found in Christ no matter what we walk through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.